Today we're kicking off a three-week series called Water and Wine. And we're looking into two of the central sacraments or ordinances that Jesus gave us uh, on baptism and communion. Uh, and we know that, you know, some religious contexts, multiple other things get added into their mix of what we need to do. But it's, we just keep it simple here. We, we go with what Jesus said, and he told us two things. He told us to repent and be baptized, and then to eat and drink in remembrance of him. And so we try to keep it simple here as we gather around those two things. We try to do them as regularly as possible. We have communion every second week, and um, we do baptisms as much as we can. And we're hoping that we just see a growth in that as God um, brings people to himself, and we get to celebrate together in baptism. So... These things, are we're wanting to do this series for a couple of reasons. Number one, we see this as the normal pattern of the New Testament church. Whenever we read the Bible, those two things are just happening all over the place. Secondly, because Jesus commanded them. And thirdly, because they're just central pictures of the Christian faith. Both baptism and communion, in a way, are pictures of death. When we drink of his body and blood. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And we're remembering how his body was broken on the cross and his blood was shed for us. And we get baptized. It's a, it's a picture of us going down and dying and then rising to new life. So we're really just gathering. We are people that gather around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus commands those two things for us, to continually remember the gospel and so we've called the subtitle exactly that, the gospel on display. Because Jesus gives us these two things to again preach the gospel to us as we are people that gather around that. And so our hope is that as we tap into this over the next three weeks, this week we're dealing with baptism, next week Doug is dealing with communion, and the week after that we're going to have uh, at a, a sort of a different service where we get to um, have a bit of a communion service and, and go over the service, taking us through the steps a bit of what communion is and just helping us enter into it a bit more fully. And then at the end, we're trusting and praying that God would give us some baptisms to celebrate together with on that day. And so um, we want to teach in this, teach into this, just so that we can, as a church, love communion and baptism more because they're two things that Jesus loved. And he gave them to us uh, as things to remember him and to celebrate him as we do them. So as I said, Romans chapter 6, we're going to just be um, keeping it simple this morning and, and tapping into three big themes or, or, or images that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 6. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 14. It'll be on the screens as well if you don't have a Bible or phone with you. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, 
so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives now, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. What a great passage of scripture. I love it. It's just so rich with theology and, and, and just nuances and, and just gospel gold in there. And, and this is the Apostle Paul. He's um, written this letter to the Romans while he's in Corinth. And uh, he's planning to make it there and he's hearing about what's going on in the church. And so he's um, written this letter to them to help them understand the gospel more and to um, be shaped by the gospel in in every part of their lives and church practice. And so in this section here, he's given us some foundational truths of what it means to be gospel people. What it means to be gospel people. And as I said, we're, we're speaking about baptism today, and you'll notice that Paul there uses an illustration of baptism. And he's using it to help us understand that when we became Christian, when we were baptized in the Spirit, something happened in us that changed our spiritual DNA. A spiritual miracle has happened in us that has changed our lives forever. And he's saying that baptism is a picture of that that has changed in us. It's an illustration of us dying and being raised to life in Jesus. And so we have a new reality. His argument is that we're no longer slaves to sin. We have new life. We've been set free. So we're going to be looking at three images in the text of of what baptism uh, looks like. It's about identifying with Jesus, that we've been put into Christ. That, that we die with him and, and, and that we've been buried with him and that we will be raised to life with him on confession of our faith in his lordship and repent of us. And so I don't know about you, but if you've been to a baptism service here, you'll know that it's an absolute party. It's amazing. It's some of my favorite times of the year for me. It's a high point for us as we get to hear people's testimonies and, and just watch their um, act of faith in, in, in just giving, sort of imaging their faith in Jesus. It's edifying, it's, it's encouraging, and um, this isn't some sort of Christian ritual that we do. It's something that Jesus commanded of us, that we obey him in doing as we hold on to the power of his gospel and um, express our faith in his lordship and sort of give a picture of our spiritual baptism in him. So what Paul is saying here, 
is that our baptism preaches a sermon. That when people see us get baptized and when we take the act of getting baptized, it's a sermon. It preaches something. It's communicating something. And so we're going to look at three things that it's communicating and preaching. And so the first thing we're seeing in this text is that our baptism preaches our identification with Jesus. He says in uh, verse 3 that we've been baptized into Christ. And we've been baptized into his death. That phrase that we've been baptized into Jesus into Jesus or or with Jesus. Paul repeats it a number of times in the passage. And I just want to unpack that a a bit because it's, it's so important for us to understand a bit of what we're doing and why Paul uses the imagery of baptism here and how it relates to our act of baptism. And he's saying that it, it's a decision. We're making a decision to identify with Jesus and his people. When we get baptized, we're saying, yes, Lord, I understand the gospel. I understand my need. I, I've repented and I've believed. And now I'm getting baptized to express my faith in you as a symbol, as a sign, and to, you know, in a unique way, expre- experience this grace for myself again, just as I did when I believed. It's a picture of us saying, I'm with that guy. I'm, I'm team Jesus. He, he's my guy. And these are my people. I'm with Christ and his people. I acknowledge them and I love them. And we just look over the beginning of the Gospels again. It's quite amazing that we see baptism was the normal pattern of what believers in Jesus did. We see in the beginning of um, Mark 1. I'll just look at Mark, but it's in all the Gospels that there was a guy by the name of John the Baptist Uh, Sort of in his name, he was baptizing people and uh, preparing them for Jesus. And it says this about what he was doing in Mark 1, uh, verse 4 and 5, that John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And we see just a few verses after that, that Jesus himself now comes to the same John and also gets baptized. Mark 1 from 9, verse 9 and 11, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan River by John. And as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Isn't that amazing? Jesus getting tucked under the water, dunked and raised. And the Trinity is present and everyone's rejoicing in Jesus before he's even started his ministry, before there's any sort of performance, he gets the approval of the Father. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's just amazing, this picture of baptism. People are getting baptized in preparation for Jesus, that Jesus comes and gets baptized himself, validating the act, and also just as a beautiful picture of what it entails. And then following that, It was the normal practice of what people did as they placed faith in Jesus. If you look at the whole of the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that's the pattern. 
especially the book of Acts, it says they repented and believed and got baptized. Quickly, together, never separate, always together. They believed him and all their household was baptized. He believed and he was baptized. She believed and he was, she was baptized. They just go together. And then when Jesus is about to leave, he's risen from the grave. He spent time ministering to his disciples. Now he's going to ascend to the Father and go back. What's the last thing Jesus says? What's his mic drop moment? What's the last thing he wants his disciples to remember and know and do? What's he going to leave with us? This is what he says. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, he says this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the essence of what we do as Christ followers. We help other people know Jesus, get baptized, and then grow as they follow him. And Jesus is saying that this is an essential act of faith in him. He commands it here. We get baptized to the gospel. We respond to the gospel by being baptized. We're saying, I'm in. We're saying, yes, Jesus, I understand the gospel. I know what you've done for me. I'm in. I need that. Thank you for being my savior. I'm identifying myself with you and your people. If you want a, a sort of image here, baptism, is, it's like a megaphone. We're just shouting through this megaphone for all to hear that I'm with Jesus. He's my guy. I'm team Jesus. I believe in his death burial and resurrection. I believe that he has saved me. I believe that he has done for me what he said he would do for me. I'm with him. It's a public declaration that you are united to Jesus. It's an act of grace in that moment. It's a public testimony of what he's done in your life. As I said, I love it when we have baptisms here. People share their testimonies and we listen and we laugh and we cry And we sing while they get dunked under the water. And they come up and we clap and we cheer and we we praise God. It's a party. All of heaven rejoices with us when that happens. And it's an act of us trusting Jesus and identifying ourselves with him. Saying, yes, Lord, you are the one I trust to save me, to be my God, to be my Lord. I could maybe explain it like this. Uh, Probably most of us have... I've been in an aeroplane before. Uh, if you haven't, you know what they look like and what they accomplish. Now imagine you're in the airport and you're wanting to go somewhere, Cape Town, Durban, whatever it is. And they, they make the boarding call. What needs to happen? Is the best thing to do there to climb on top of the plane or, or to climb under the, the plane? Or maybe do you stand behind the plane and just sort of watch which direction it takes off and then set out on a thousand mile journey in that direction. No, of course not. That's stupid. You get in the plane and you're not sitting inside flapping your wings. You're just sitting there, chilling, trusting that the plane is going to do the work for you. Trusting that the plane is going to take you where you need to go. And that's the picture of what we're doing when we 
put our faith, when we repent and believe, when we repent and be baptized, we're saying, yes, Jesus, I'm placing myself into you. You will do what for me what you said you will do for me. I'm trusting you to save me. I'm trusting you to forgive me. I'm trusting you to make me yours. I'm trusting you I can rest. You will do for me what you said you will do for me. And you might need to believe that maybe for the first time today. Maybe you've forgotten it and God is calling you home. It's an amazing thing that we can just rest and trust that Jesus has done it all on the cross. He said, it is finished. And he meant that. And we get to be recipients of that same grace. And so I also just want to say this, that the picture in the New Testament is placing faith and trust in Jesus to save us. But as as I mentioned or alluded to earlier, it's linked to the moment of faith more than I think we think it is in our current church culture. If, if you look at, um, if you take notes, write down Acts chapter 8 and go have a read of it later. But I'll tell you the story. There, there's a, a disciple's name is Philip and he's filled with the spirit and the Lord speaks to him and says, Philip, I want you to go to this place and you're going to have an interaction with a guy there. And it's going to be amazing for him and it's going to be life changing for him. So please obey me, go there. Philip says, yes, Lord. And he goes. And he sees a guy there, we're told in, 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 the, in the verses that this guy is an Ethiopian eunuch. He, he's, uh, he's with the official, um, apparently works for the, the queen of Ethiopia. And he's there uh, on a mission. And um, Philip go, goes up near him and, and he hears that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah aloud. So Philip asks him, hey man, do, do you understand what you're reading? And he replies, no, I actually have no idea. I need someone to help me. So Philip meets with him and starts unpacking with him what he's reading. And we're told in the text that he, he leads him to Jesus, that he explains what the gospel is. He explains how the text points to Jesus. He explains how the whole story of God is ultimately found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, by, and you'll see just now, that he clearly also in that story includes the importance of baptism. Because here's, what, uh, how, here's how the Ethiopian eunuch responds. Verses uh, 37, 38 uh, of chapter 8. He says, as they were traveling down the road, they were traveling in the, in the, in the chariot. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said this, look, well, there's some water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized them. I just love this text. I love the simplicity of it. What would keep me from being baptized? It's a great question to ask yourself. I'm not trying to shame anyone here. If you haven't been baptized, everyone has a journey that is beautiful. And we're trusting Christ to do an amazing work in you by his grace. But it's a good question to ask. What would keep me from being baptized? What would keep you from being baptized? I think we unnecessarily overcomplicate it. Sometimes we feel like we need to understand the full scope of theology of the Bible before we can take that step. Or or we just sort of don't feel ready in our heart. And you know what? I'd like to challenge that this morning. Because the pattern of the scripture is the exact opposite. They repented and believed. 
And then as they grew as Christians, as they met with the church, as they read their Bible, as they followed Christ, the more they followed Jesus, the more they learned about what the gospel was and what happened and what it means and what we need to believe in and what we need to trust in. And they look back and they understand more retrospectively. They're saying, oh, that's what my baptism meant. Oh, that's what it's all about. We, we place a gap sometimes between believing in Jesus and getting baptized. And we see in Scripture that there isn't as much of a gap as we, as we have it nowadays. So I just want to encourage you, as Tono mentioned earlier, next week Sunday, we have a baptism class for you to come and ask questions. If there's something in your heart that you just, you know, you're not, you don't feel ready or you still have questions about what it means and today was completely unhelpful, you can come next week and ask your questions. Please write the date down, RSVP to admin or just turn up. We're going to have that class. That's a day for you to come and make your mark and say, yes, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you. What is holding me back? Why shouldn't I be baptized? Let me go for it. I'm going to follow you. I'm in. I'm in, Jesus. I'm in with you. I'm identifying with your death, burial, and resurrection. You're my man. The second thing our baptism preaches is our death with Jesus. It preaches the death of Jesus and what it accomplishes for us. So if you look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 6, it says something amazing. It says that when we were baptized, we were baptized into his death. And we were baptized yeah, into his death, sorry, and we were buried with him by baptism into death. And then verse 6 says that our old self was crucified with him. And then verse 8 says that we died with Christ. So the first thing that happens when we become Christians is that we attend our own funeral. We die spiritually speaking. We die to sin, and that's what he's getting at. We'll unpack it a bit later. The old, our old self that was dead in sin has died, and he's made us alive. And we're going to talk about the new life section just now. But for now, we're just talking about how our baptism preaches the death of Christ. Jesus died in our place. This is the most outrageous thing in Scripture. Everyone knows that if you mess up, you're going to be the one to pay the price for that mess up. It's just a way of life. But spiritually and in the gospel, that's not what happens. Our sin gets transferred to Jesus and he takes the beating for us. He takes the hit. We rejected God and rebelled Him. We broke His laws and broke His heart. He was dead to us, and we were dead in our sin to Him. And Paul tells us later on in chapter 6 what, where the sin leads us. Verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So death, that's what our sin deserves. That's where it's going to lead us. And it has to be dealt with. God just couldn't ignore it because he's holy. So you can't just pretend it doesn't exist because then he wouldn't be holy. He has to acknowledge it. And because he's just, he has to deal with it. He can't just brush over it. So what's the master plan of God? What does he do? How does, how does God deal with our sin without violating who he is? 
Here's how he does it. He takes the hit himself. He sends his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin in our place. That's the gospel. That we deserve the hit, but God took it for us. Look at 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. So he dies, he pays the price for our sin, and his death gets imputed to us so that our sin is dealt with, and that we don't have to be killed for what our sins deserve. So when we get baptized, we're saying, Amen, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. You've paid the price for me. Thank you, Lord. I don't have to pay the price. You've done it for me. Thank you, Jesus. And then secondly, Paul says, the flip side of that is now that we've been set free, we have the joy of living in the freedom of the gospel. Verse 6 and 7, he says that we are no longer slaves to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. And that's Paul's central argument in this passage, his first statement, his first question. The thing that this whole passage centers around is that first verse. Should we continue in sin so that our grace may multiply? Paul's just been expounding in the first couple of chapters and, and leading us towards the gospel. And what he's saying is, there is more grace in God than sin in us. And there's, his grace is inexhaustible. We can never reach the end of it. But Paul's clever because he knows where our corrupt hearts goes the, go the minute we hear that. We hear, oh, hmm, there's never-ending grace for my sin, all right. And we find a way to make use of that grace. Because if we don't sin, then Jesus died for nothing, right? No, that's not how it works. Paul's argument isn't just that we've been forgiven, it's that we've been changed. It's not just that our sin has been covered, it's that we've become new people. This is quite profound, but he, what he's saying is we were slaves to sin. We could not get our way out of that. We were dead. And in his grace, he's changed our identity. He's taken us from death to life. We've taken us from being slaves to being sons and daughters and taken us from being enslaved to being free. And he's saying, you know what? If our initial response to the free grace of God and unlimited grace of God is to abuse it by keeping on sinning and relying on it, we have a super, superficial understanding of grace. Because the more grace gets into us, the more it sets us free to just love God and enjoy him. Just love him and enjoy him. Yes, we're still going to sin. We're going to still struggle. But the response then is what? What does Paul say to us? Verse 11, he says, So consider yourselves dead to sin. That's his antidote. I think a lot of, our, a lot of us, if we're honest, our Christian journey um, is a bit like, you know, we come to faith, many of us, and there's just like a radical change. There's just like a complete revolution, like Jesus has stormed the gates of your heart, and it's like something has just changed. Like suddenly we feel um, convicted for sin, and we feel like, um, just a sensitized, a, a new sensitivity to, to, to being holy and being Christ-like. 
And then the more we journey in Christ and the more we struggle with sin and the more we neglect our Bible and neglect to pray and neglect our relationship with God, the more that fades away and we just get more and more and more desensitized to sin. And so Paul is saying, yeah, how do you get that back? How do you get that back? How do you get a renewed conviction for sin and a renewed uncomfortability with the sin that lives in you? It should bug us. Because it bugs God's heart. It bugs God. So how do we get it back? He tells us, consider yourselves dead. Remind yourself. Preach to yourself. Tell yourself what's happened. Tell yourself the truth. Because our sin wants us to believe one thing, but the hard work is telling our hearts what's true about us. And the truest thing about you is what God says is true about you. And he said that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. So consider yourself dead. Consider yourself dead. When we get baptized, when we place our faith in Jesus, when we remember he is Lord, we're saying that, yeah, I've died, I've died. The old me is gone. The old me is gone. And we get to respond with what Paul says in verse 13, that we get to offer ourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Not weapons for, I just love that word weapons. It's so weighty. Every day, let's not just think that our spiritual battle is just a bit neutral. No, it's a war with weapons. And you get given the power of the Spirit to either gun for weapons or you get the power of the Spirit to gun for weapons of righteousness. But in our sin, we struggle, of course. Thank you, Jesus, for the Spirit and your help in our lives. So we're doing both those things when we get baptized. We're saying, yes, Jesus, I trust you to set me free. And yes, Jesus, I'm choosing to live free by your spirit. A friend of mine um, had an had a old school friend who he hadn't seen in about, um, I think it was like 15 years. And uh, apparently this school friend was quite the reprobate because he told me the story about how he saw him for the first time in 15 years and he was just sort of catching up and you know, keeping the conversation light and just joking with him about what a complete, um, you know, delinquent and reprobate he was. And, and, and his, his friend replied, yeah, you know, well, it's still there, but thankfully that guy died in a pool. And he had since become a Christian. And that's the way he described it. That guy died in a pool. He's not saying, now I'm morally perfect. He's not saying, no, I'm a goody two-shoes. He's saying, I'm new, I'm different. I've died to sin. I'm dead. I'm dead to that old way of life, and I've been made entirely new. When you get baptized, it's a declaration that the chains have been broken. You're believing what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. It's dead. And the new has come. We've received new life. And so as I started off by saying baptism is like a megaphone. Here, baptism is like a grave. We're saying, yes, Jesus, we've died with you. And that is a good thing for us because we don't want to be slaves. We're sons who want to live free by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God in the gospel. We have new life. And so that's the third thing that he says here. Our baptism preaches our new life in Jesus. Verse 4 says something amazing. It says that we've been buried with Jesus 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Newness of life. I just love that phrase, newness with life. We've been made alive. This is amazing news. Titus 3 verse um, 5, it says this, that Jesus saved us, not because of the righteous works we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's not by works. We didn't earn it. We didn't accomplish it. We didn't achieve it. It was the free gift of God, and it's by the Spirit. So we didn't conform ourselves to look different. We got changed because the Spirit got put into us and made us alive. This is all the work of God and the gospel getting into us and changing who we are and giving us new life in Him. No, I think we get this wrong because I think Christianity has become, at least from the outside, and maybe you can identify some of this Trojan horse uh, incorrect theology in your own lives that we tend to think at times that it's all about being a good person. Just be a good person. As long as we're nice and polite and we don't do all the bad things that those terrible people do, we'll be okay. No, that's moralism. That's not the gospel. Sort of that picture of the scales. As long as your good works outweigh your bad works, you're fine. No, that's not the gospel. You know what the problem with that is? is that there's no objective standard. You're going you're to have to do the comparison thing. You're going to have to compare yourself horizontally with everyone else. And we're always you know, going to compare ourselves with the worst of worst and think we're okay. And, and what Jesus is saying, no, that, that's the wrong way around. You can't compare yourself horizontally. We've got to pair us, uh, compare ourselves vertically. God is holy and perfect. Compared to him, not one of us make it. We all fall short. We all fall short. You know what the good news of the gospel is? Is that Jesus died for us, for our sin, in our place, dealing with our mess. And it just changes everything. That God accepts us and saves us because of Christ's obedience, not because of our repeated uh, efforts. He saves us in spite of of our mess-ups. He saves us because of Christ's victory and in spite of our failures. It's all what Jesus has done for us, not what we get wrong. And by his Spirit, he gets into us. But this is amazing news. It's not about moralism. Jesus did not come to make bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. And this is good, good, good news. It's great news that Jesus doesn't come to give us a second chance. Sometimes I've heard that far too many times, that Jesus come to give us a second chance. What rubbish. What absolute rubbish. Because then it's, it's implying that it's dependent on our performance, that God's going to give us a chance, we're going to try and mess it up, and then he'll give us a third chance, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. We'll never get it right. But here's the good news. Salvation does not depend on your performance. It depends on Christ's performance, and we know the story. He was victorious. So you can place faith in him and know that freedom just by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. It's, what Jesus gives us is so much better than a second chance. He offers us new life. I think too many people cling to self-improvement when what Jesus offers is salvation. 
You're going to get up in the morning and you're going to go after one of two things as a Christian. You're going to either run after trying to be better and pull your socks up or you're going to trust in the finished work of Jesus. And here's the good news. The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about new life. He gives you new life in Christ. He makes you alive. He makes you brand new. He gives you a new heart, a new identity, new power. And so when we get baptized, we're saying, yes, Jesus, I identify with your death and I identify with your resurrection. You've made me new. Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a great verse. I've been united with him. I have new life. And this morning you might still have questions. You might still be thinking, well, what if I got baptized as an infant? Do I need to get baptized again? Or, or maybe I, I was baptized, but I sort of lost my way and now I'm back. Should I get rebaptized? Or you might be asking, what if I don't feel ready? Come next week with your questions. It'd be a beautiful thing to help us express this faith in Jesus to save us and to celebrate what the baptism signifies for us. I want to end just by speaking about the best day of my life. Uh, it was my wedding day. I tell my wife, my, my daughter, often that she comes second. And I want her to know that because it's true. I think there's great freedom for children to know that um, mom and dad are um, in love and strong with each other. And just that day of my wedding day was a great day. All, all, all the months of, of saving up for a wedding ring and then getting engaged and doing planning and stuff. We didn't have a very long engagement, but it felt, it felt days. And the day came, and I stood at the end of the aisle. My, my beautiful wife walked through the doors, and she came towards me, and my chin was quivering. My eyes were was, was slightly wet, and um, it was a great day. We prayed, and we sang, and, and we heard the Bible preached, and we, and we said our vows, and, and then we took the, we took the rings we held each other's hands. And I, I, I put the ring on my wife's finger and I, I said these words. I said, tell you, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you within the love of God. We still wear our wedding rings today. I love wearing this ring. It tells me the union of my marriage. It, it reminds me who I am. It reminds me whose I am. The ring doesn't make us married, but it's a picture of the marriage I get to enjoy and celebrate and live in day on day. It puts my marriage to tell you on display. And look, this is not a perfect analogy, but this is a picture of what baptism is. Some of you have made the vows. You've said, Jesus, I believe in you and love you. But baptism is like putting on the ring of marriage. It's much more than that, but 
It is also that. It's, it's the ring of marriage. It's a picture of the relationship that you've entered into. It's a picture of those vows. Everything I am, I give to you. I trust you. I share with you. you I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. It puts the gospel on display as we remember what Jesus has done for us to make us his. And we're responding by saying, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. So I just want to encourage us. Some of us have said the vows. We've got an opportunity in the next two weeks to put on the ring, as it were. I'm just trusting this morning as being encouraging for us, just as we remember the gospel afresh in our lives. It's put on the ring of marriage if you haven't yet. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. We're just so encouraged again this morning to remember that you came for us. You left heaven's throne to come down to seek and save us, the lost. We knew that without you coming to do the work of finding us, we would have been lost forever. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We were dead in our sins. We wouldn't know where to look when we were blind. But you came and sought us out. And we're so thankful, Jesus, that you put your spirit to work in our lives, to make us alive, to make us new, to help us get what you've done for us, to enter us in to your death, burial, and resurrection. We're so thankful, Lord, that you took our sin on our behalf for us, that everything that separated us from you has been dealt with in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we get to experience the full blessing of everything he has done for us on confession of our faith in him. We just want to pray, Jesus, for our church, that we would see many baptisms as a sign of people taking use your, your gospel seriously, that it's a sign that your gospel is invading our church and invading our city. And we just pray for that, God, by faith. We want to see many people baptized and added into our community. So we pray, Jesus, would you do the work of seeking and saving the lost? Would you do the work of encouraging people to get baptized? Would you do the work of doing what only you can do in bringing many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and help them respond in faith and baptism? We love you, Jesus. We celebrate you. We worship you. Right now, help us just once again remind our hearts of who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. Thank you for new life in Christ. We love you. Amen.